Well, I don't know how you wives feel about a trip down the hill to Bass Pro Shop or to Sportsman's Warehouse, but I think I have a pretty good idea how your husband thinks about it. I'm going to guess that he looks at things that make you nervous. I'm going to guess that he runs his hand over the fender of things that you can't afford, and I'm going to guess that he speaks of how much fun that boat would be for the kids. I'm going to guess that in the end, most of the time, as it ends up with my wife and I when we go there, it ends up all being pretty harmless. Like me, they end up staring first at the fish tank, imagining what it would be to actually land something and not just cast your bait. And in the end, they're staring at the brag board that's cluttered with all kinds of pictures of sportsmen and sportswomen grinning broadly with some dead animal that isn't. And there are bears there, and you see pictures of goats and mountain sheep, and you see pictures of deer and elk, and there are people on boats holding up a halibut or two, and some are holding up a, a, a large striper or a salmon out of the Sacramento River. But the one that always gets me, the one that I lock on to and just can't seem to leave when I'm down there are those, those pictures from yesteryear where that group of middle-aged men and occasionally a, a daring middle-aged woman, they're dressed in Pendleton flannels and wool knickers or holding up a stringer between them that just has every fish in the lake hanging from it. You know the picture? What a day they must have had on the lake, you think to yourself. What an amazing time in American history when there were just so many trout streaming in that river. There were just so many fish in that lake that people caught fish with abundance and didn't even sweat it. There was no conservation ethic at all. It was just harvest stuff and brag about it. That's what it was. I got to admit, I felt a little bit of that last week as we saw the response of the great crowds to Peter's preaching. I wondered if when he preached and 3,000 or so landed in his net, if he thought to himself, oh, and he, 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 he wanted to simply run down to Sportsman's Warehouse and, and post this picture. Who in their first sermon has that kind of response? And maybe as a preacher, I think about it more than you do. But just a couple of years earlier, Peter was just a simple, burly fisherman. And he wasn't a good one at that. I mean, if we can go with the, the Bible's depiction of Peter's success, according to the scriptures, he never caught anything. And of course, it was in the context of boats and nets and fishing that the Lord first called Peter to be his disciples, and he told him that he would be a fisher of men. Why don't you turn with me to the book of Luke? Luke chapter 5, here we see the call of the first disciples. Luke writes by the Holy Spirit, now it happened that while the crowd was pressing around him and listening to the word of God, he was standing at the edge of the lake of Gennesaret, that is the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias in our text for the day. And he saw two boats lying at the edge of the lake and the fishermen having gotten out of them were washing their nets. And he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and asked him to put out a little way from the land. And he sat down and began teaching the crowds from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, that is Peter, 
put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. <laughs> Simon answered and said, Master, we, uh, we labored all night and caught nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a great quantity of fish and their nets began to break. And so they signaled to their partners in the other boat for them to come and help them. And they came and filled both of the boats so that they began to sink. And when Simon Peter saw this, he fell down at Jesus' at Jesus's knees saying, go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. For amazement had seized him and all his companions because of the catch of the fish which they had taken. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon, were also likewise amazed. And Jesus said to Simon, do not fear. From now on, you will be catching men. And when he had brought their boats to land, when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and they followed him. You have to wonder if that great moment in Peter's life was in Peter's mind as he preached on the day of Pentecost and saw a great school of fish come to Christ. Certainly Luke, who wrote both the gospel according to Luke and wrote the book of Acts, is very interested that we see the work of Christ progressing, that what Jesus said would happen, in fact, did happen. And that for all of Peter's failures as a fisherman, he became a pretty good fisher of men, didn't he? By the grace of God. But the lessons that Peter and James and John and the rest of the disciples, all that they had learned, those lessons were not sufficient. They had not become complete anglers for Christ. And so here in our text for the morning, Jesus is going to give them another master class at the water's edge. Turn with me to John chapter 21. We'll pick up in verse 1. I mentioned last week that I was tempted to title that sermon, Peter Goes Fishing. And I told you that perhaps today you would get that sermon, and so you are. This is Peter Goes Fishing. This is a different event. This is a different day. This is right before Pentecost, about a month or so. That first event in Luke was at the beginning of Peter's call to Christ and his ministry to Christ. This is after Jesus has resurrected from the dead. Let's pick it up in verse 1 and read down to verse 14. After these things, Jesus manifested himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, again, same, same place as we saw in Luke 5. This is the Sea of Galilee. And he manifested himself in this way. Simon Peter and Thomas called Didymus and Nathanael of Cana in Galilee and the sons of Zebedee and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we will also come with you. And they went out and got into the boat, and that night they caught nothing. But when the day was now breaking, Jesus stood on the beach, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. So Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast, and then they were not able to haul it in because of the great number of fish. Therefore that disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. So when Simon Peter heard it, that it was the Lord, he put his outer garment on, for he was stripped for work, and he cast himself into the sea. But the other disciples came in the little boat, for they were not far from the land, but about 200 cubits away, that is 100 yards, dragging a net full of fish. 
So when they got on the land, they saw the charcoal fire in its place and fish placed on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish which you have now caught. Simon Peter went up and drew the net to land full of large fish, 153. And although there were so many, their net was not, the net was not torn. And Jesus said to them, come have breakfast. None of the disciples dared to question him, who are you, knowing that it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and the fish likewise. Now this is the third time that Jesus was manifested to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Lord, again, take this stammering tongue. Use it for your glory. By your spirit, declare your truth. Implant it deeply within us and, Lord, grow us that we might be fishers of men and all to your glory. Amen. Many people have questioned why John even recorded this miracle at the end of his book. It's the only post-resurrection miracle attributed to Jesus. Why did John record this? What is the message and why are these lessons here? And I would say this to you up front that it's, it's not obvious. It's not as obvious as some other texts. But that does not deter us, does it? Because nothing but nothing in Scripture is just there. Nothing is simply filler. These are not just mere details that tell us, you know, that Peter had had a rough evening and Jesus was kind enough to provide him with some breakfast in the morning. That's not the point. Jesus has a point. John had a point for, in recording these things. There is something in this text that Jesus' disciples needed to learn. There's something this morning, brothers and sisters, that you need to learn from this text. And I think the answer to the question of what is this text primarily about is really found in the two verses that sandwich the text. That is verse 1 and verse 14. These two verses give us the parameters for understanding the text and the purpose for John's inclusion of this episode in the disciples' lives. All of it really hinges on one word, and that is the word manifested. Can you see it in the text? Look at verse 1. After these things, Jesus manifested himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, and he manifested himself in this way. This is now, verse 14, the third time that Jesus was manifested to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. This word manifested means more than simply appeared to them. That's the way we tend to think of it. We think that he just appeared to them after he rose from the grave. Listen, they already knew that. He had manifested himself before. He had shown himself a number of times. John, in fact, is particularly fond of the word manifested. He uses it nearly 20 times in, the, in his gospel and in the first epistle. This word has the idea of putting one's character and one's attributes on display. John 17 and verse 6, Jesus prays these words to the Father. I have manifested, there's our word, I have manifested your name. That is your character, your person, your power. I have manifested your name to the men that you gave me out of the world. Jesus had displayed the name of the Father, his person, and his works. And so when John says three times that Jesus manifested himself to the disciples, he's talking about Christ's self-disclosure. Jesus wanted his disciples to understand some things about himself, who he is, and about his power. And by implication, then, Jesus is going to show them something about themselves, things that we need to learn about ourselves. So what is it we learn about Christ? What is it we learn about ourselves? Well, we need to understand that when Jesus manifested himself, 
Again, the goal was not merely to show that he was alive from the dead. Think about it. The first time he manifests himself is in John chapter 20 and verses 19 to 23. All the disciples are there except for Thomas. You remember the scene? Jesus appears suddenly, though the door was shut and the walls hemmed them in. Jesus is in their midst. That would have said something about Jesus, yes? Probably. And then what else? He, he comes to them suddenly and miraculously and they see that he has risen from the grave and he is alive and he is in their midst and he shows them his hands and his side. He ministers to his shaken disciples. He speaks words to them twice saying what? Peace be with you. And he commissions them for service, even giving them a foretaste of the Holy Spirit. What did he want to show them? That he's the Lord of life. That he has power over death. That he's not angry with them. He doesn't hate them for their failure and departure. That he hasn't refused them and rejected them. He wants them to understand, no, I want you to be at peace. I want you to see with me full forgiveness, though you failed me entirely. I still love you. I still accept you. Then he shows up to them a second time in, the, in verses 24 to 29, and, and here he appears to all the disciples, including Thomas, and what's the first word out of his mouth again? Peace be with you. And he ministers very directly and very tangibly to Thomas. He knows every one of Thomas's questions, even though he was not there to hear those questions. Oh, he's omniscient. And he helps Thomas. He, he, he meets all of his skeptical demands. He meets them one by one. You remember those great words. Oh, now do you believe, Thomas? Blessed are those who do not see and yet believe. Listen, Jesus was not showing up merely to put the reality of his resurrection on display, but to reveal himself to them. He wanted his disciples to see him, but more than that, he wants his disciples to know him. He wants you to know him. He wants you to understand him, to have insight into him, to have a relationship with him that impacts your life day to day. He wants you to know that he is all-powerful. He wants you to know that he is all-knowing. He wants you to know that he has great affection for you. That he loves you. That he gave his life for you. He wants you to know that he knows what a lousy fisherman you are. He wants you to know that he's well aware of all of your faults and all of your failings, all that you struggle with, all those areas in your life that you're sure he's just so disappointed with you. No. He comes to you and he wants you to know how vital you are, how important you are to his purposes, that he's got a useful place for you in the story of redemption. He wants you to know that he is gracious to forgive. He wants you to know that he is abounding in faithfulness, that he will never leave you or depart from you. He wants you to be not embroiled in perpetual anxiety about all that you're not doing. No, he says, peace be to you. Three times he said it to them. How powerful peace is as a testimony to your faith in Christ. Not your anxiety. This world is full of anxiety. This world is anxious about everything, but not Christ's people. Are we? There is much more to learn for these men, 
Much more to reflect on. And so here, this third time, he tells us in verse 14, he is going to manifest himself yet again to them. He wants one more chance to to meet with them and to teach them before he ascends to the Father. And so following, you remember, if you go back to his resurrection appearance, he told his disciples, he told the women to inform the disciples, look, I want you to go, I want you to take word to my brethren, that is to to the disciples, and you tell them, I want you to leave and go to Galilee. And he says, "When when you get up there, understand something, I'm following, it's there that you'll see me. And then Matthew 28, 16 says, the 11 disciples, remember Judas is gone, the 11 disciples proceeded to Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had designated. Now, we find these disciples at the foot of that mountain that Jesus had designated. Here they are on that place, on the Sea of Galilee, and it's the evening before Jesus is going to show up to manifest himself. And unbeknownst to the disciples, the Lord is about to manifest himself again to them so that at a very teachable moment, by very physical means, in a very familiar context, that is in a fishing context again, he wants to convey these spiritual realities to them, some things about himself so that they might understand as they move forward in ministry on his behalf that they have all sufficiency in Christ. They're in need of understanding about themselves, about Christ, and about the nature of Christian service. Now listen, before we go any further, I want you to understand, I don't believe that the disciples understood all of these lessons right off. I really don't. I think much of what Jesus intended to convey here, most of what he taught them, they gained greater insight down the road. As time went on, they could reflect together on their interactions with Christ. And so Jesus is preparing them, excuse me, for lessons that they need to know and understand that they'll draw on for strength and for understanding in the future. This is interesting, but Peter told his readers in First Peter, or sorry, Second Peter, chapter one and verse thirteen to fifteen. Here, here's what it says: I consider it right, as long as I'm in this earthly dwelling, as long as I'm still alive, to stir you up by way of reminder, knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent. What's he saying? I'm alive now, I want to stir you up because I know that the Lord's going to take me home. Now listen to these words. He said, "I'll, I'm going to be diligent about this." so that any time after my departure, you will be able to recall these things to mind. I wonder where he got that. I wonder where he began to think about investing in people so that when he was gone, they would be able to draw on the things that he had taught them. I'm sure it's from this kind of thing. Jesus did the very thing. So the things that Jesus says here to his disciples in the first century, beloved, are just as instructive for his disciples in the 21st century. These principles are just as applicable to you and to me. So this morning, in the time we have left, I want to give you five indispensable commitments for effective and enduring service to Christ. You want to be effective in your service to Christ? You want to last in your service to Christ? You want to not grow disheartened and peter out? Settle into the Christian lazy boy and throw your feet up and wait for the rapture? You want to keep digging in for Jesus' sake? You want your life to count? You want to make a dent in this world? These principles are necessary for you. Here we go. Number one, every one of us must live with an unceasing awareness that ministry is a mercy. Ministry is a mercy. Look at verse 2. Look at these names. Consider with me these names. Simon Peter. Why start with him? Well, every list starts with Simon Peter, doesn't it? Simon Peter. Who do we expect to follow Simon Peter? In every list of the disciples, who always comes next? Peter, James, John. Simon Peter and Thomas. Thomas and Nathaniel 
of Cana and Galilee, and here we get them, and the sons of Zebedee. And then John just ran out of steam. He says, eh, two other disciples. <laughs> they were all together. Could it be, beloved, that John, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, so ordered this list to remind us of something, to teach us something? I wonder if John might be helping us understand this very fact that your failings in Christ are not final. Here's Peter, who three times, despite his boasting, three times had denied Christ just a month ago. Here's Thomas, who doubted, who simply would not believe unless I can touch him. And among these are the others, other disciples who also declared their loyalty to Christ, didn't they? And where were they to be found? Well, they deserted the Lord. You have a denier. You have a, a doubter. You have a bunch of deserters. And yet here they are, by the Lord's command, gathered on the Sea of Galilee, a place that is so incredibly rich. Think about it of memories with him. It is along these shores that Peter and James and John were called from their boats and from their nets just three years earlier. It's from above this lake on that mountain where Jesus preached that sermon where he fed 25,000 people with a lunchbox of fish and bread. It is here that those pigs that Jesus cast all those demons into rushed down the hill to their death. It is here where Jesus healed the Gerizim demoniac. It is here where Jesus walked on the water. It's here where Jesus calmed the sea. It's here where Jesus did so many things with these men. They had so much evidence that he was who he claimed to be. And yet when the, when the decisive day came to stand with Christ, who they knew to be the Messiah, they had nothing. And yet here they are. Christ has not cut them off. He's commanded them to go. I'll meet you there. What gratitude these men must have had, though sinful and faithless, that Christ still had a purpose for them? And beloved, so it is with you. No matter what you've done, no matter how you failed him, no matter how frail and, and weak you have been, how faithless you have been, how little fishing you've done, don't, don't finish your life on the shore. Get with it. He's called you. He's given you a task. He's gifted you for the work. And you protest and you say, but, 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 Peter, Thomas, and the, 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 the deserters, they're our forerunners. Have you denied him in weakness? I tell you, he has not forsaken you. Have you doubted him? He's patient with you. Have you departed from him for a sinful season? Listen, turn around, turn to him because he hasn't abandoned you. Beloved, hear this. Your failings in Christ are never final in Christ. And you need to remember that the privilege of ministry for Christ is always Always, always a mercy from Christ. Did you think he saved you and employed you in his service because you were capable? You were the best man for the job. You were the woman that he was waiting for. You were the teen who finally after generations of all those faithless adults, here you are, you've arrived, my friend, and Jesus, all is going to be well with his kingdom. You're here. 
That is not why you were called into service for Christ. Or, as I said, perhaps you've been sitting on the shore because you think you are no good and you are unworthy and you are not able and you'd be closer to the truth than the other guy. Paul preached the gospel with amazing confidence, didn't he? But not from a sense of self-confidence. He was a man under obligation and he knew it. Woe is me if I don't preach the gospel. And I'm here in fear. And I'm here in weakness. But all that's good because when I'm weak, God is strong and your faith needs to rest on the power of God, not my skill. Peter preached the gospel in confidence, didn't he? Standing there before thousands for his first message. But it wasn't self-confidence. No, he was way too close to just 40 days earlier when he was cowering before a little servant girl. No, he had confidence in his Lord. Here's Paul, 2 Corinthians 3, 5. Not that we, not that we are sufficient in and of ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God. Here's Paul in 2 Corinthians 4, 1. Therefore, what's your conclusion, Paul? Since we have this ministry, since we've been called into ministry, he says, as we have received mercy. You see, ministry is mercy. And he says, as we have this ministry, as we've received mercy, we do not lose heart. In other words, I don't grow deflated in the work. I'm not paralyzed. I don't abandon my ministry. I'm not consumed with a bunch of introspection. I don't even evaluate myself, Paul says. I don't, I don't do that. I don't lose heart in the work. Why? Because Paul had such great results all the time? No, half the time he was, he was being stoned and shipwrecked and imprisoned. It all is very counterintuitive. But Paul didn't lose heart because he understood that his sufficiency was from God and that his work was a calling that was just a mercy to him. Every believer must understand this. Your ministry for Christ is a mercy from Christ. You are, beloved, Ephesians 2.10, his workmanship. He made you. He purchased you. He knit you together. He has called each and every one of you who are here, who are in Christ. You are his workmanship. Well, what did he make me for? He created you in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared beforehand that you should walk in them. Do you understand what that is saying? That is not saying that you were merely saved and forgiven of your sins so that you could get to heaven. What that is saying is that you were saved and you were given a purpose. You were saved to serve. You were created in Christ to minister for Christ. You were called through the gospel to proclaim the gospel. Beloved, let us be up and doing and let us be faithful and let us take hold and take responsibility and take heart to the ministry that God has called us. The time is short. The day is drawing near when no man can work and you and I have breath now. Let us use it. We have strength now. Let us employ it. Let's labor while we're here. It's a mercy in spite of our failings. There's a second principle. I'll pick up the pace, I promise. Secondly, you must have an unyielding conviction. An unyielding conviction that apart from Christ, you can do nothing. Verse 3, Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. I love that. 
I just love that. There's nothing better than those words coming out of my mouth. I love those words. I'm going fishing. Peter's like, done. He's going fishing. And they said to him, "Ah, we also will come with you. It sounds a little formal to me, but I guess that's the way they replied in the first century. We'd say me too. Some people look at this text and they fault Peter and the other disciples for abandoning their clear mandate to be witnesses for Christ. In other words, I'm going back to the old life. I'm going back to my job as a fisherman. I'm done with this Jesus fellow. He's disappointed us. There's no future. In other words, somehow they're demonstrating some kind of lack of devotion or a dereliction of duty. I don't think there's any reason in the text to believe that. I think it's much more likely, knowing Peter, that this was just a spontaneous desire on Peter's part and the rest of the disciples to just go fishing. I I think they may have grown hungry. (laughs) They were waiting for the Lord to show up. They needed to eat something. It may have been that they went fishing for economic reasons. Maybe they thought, you know, enough of just standing around waiting for Jesus. Let's at least go get some money in our pockets while we have the opportunity. It may have been that they were just bored. They just wanted to do something to pass the time. Whatever the case, impulsive Peter takes the lead and he launches out with the rest. It tells us they went out and they got into the boat and that night they caught nothing. Now, you might think that's weird or even illegal to go fishing at night. It is in California, so don't do it. But on the Sea of Galilee, it was customary to fish from dusk to dawn in the cool of the day. The water cooled off. The air cooled off. Those fish came up in the water table. You remember, they didn't have leaded lines and downriggers. They had nets. They had to catch fish that were up. What's notable is not so much that they were in a boat fishing at night. What's what's notable, what John wants us to understand are these words, they caught nothing. Have you ever been there? You ever fished for hours? You ever invested a whole day and come back with an empty cooler? That is a bad feeling. It has been a very long night, and these men are understandably weary. They are hungry, and I think their pride perhaps was a little wounded. I mean, they were, in fact, fishermen by trade. They're supposed to be good at this thing. Their lives depended upon it. Their families depended upon it, and they've got nothing. They were utterly skunked. And then things just get worse. There's this wiseacre on the beach about 100 yards off, and he's shouting to them. Verse 4, but when the day was now breaking, that is to say right at the break of dawn, just as, as first light happens, when the light's really low and it's very difficult to see very far, Jesus stood on the beach, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. So Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no, and I would have loved to have heard the tone of that no. I mean, you talk about rubbing salt in the wound. It is humiliating enough for any man, let alone a bunch of professional fishermen, to to come back with nothing. But now there's a guy on the shore announcing to whoever might be there, you didn't catch anything. Did you? And I think that, you know, I'm not a genius, but I think that 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 must have been a very odd moment in the boat. I really do. I mean, first of all, who, who is this guy? And secondly, why is he calling us children? And beyond that, how does he know that we didn't catch anything? And the answers are going to be clear to them in in a moment. I mean, the man on the beach is the Lord, and he's calling them children simply as a term of endearment, just like John does in his epistles. And as to the question about the lack of fish, 
you've got to hear it. It really comes across as more of a statement. It's like the dentist saying to you, you haven't been flossing, have you? Right? That's not a question. He or she knows the answer to the question. The man on the beach is omniscient, and he knows the answer. And the question is posed not to give him information. The question is posed to bring this truth to bear that without me, you ain't got nothing. That's really the point. It doesn't matter how late you've labored. It doesn't matter how hard you've worked. It doesn't matter how you've cooperated. It doesn't matter how committed you were to the task. Without him, the nets are empty. This is so much more than just a lousy fishing report. These men had had a bad night fishing before. Remember Luke 5, way back. And Jesus had called them to be fishers of men, and they needed to be made conscious of their impotence, of their helplessness. And the message here is really simple enough. Without Christ, no fish. With Christ, full nets. That is the message. Without him, they could do nothing, but by him, they could succeed. And so if you and I are to experience an effective and enduring ministry to Christ, we've got to have an awareness, first of all, that ministry is mercy. And secondly, we've got to have an unyielding conviction that apart from Christ, we got nothing. There's a third lesson, and that is that we must have an unhesitating obedience to the word of Christ. We must be unhesitating in our obedience to the word of Christ. Verse 6, he said to them, cast the, night on the, uh, cast the net on the right hand, right, right hand side of the boat and you will find a catch. And again, I would have loved to have been a barnacle on that boat. Can you imagine? Not only does this guy on the beach, who we cannot make out, announce to the world and especially to us that we are not good fishermen that we have nothing in our boat. But then he has the audacity to say, just to give us a little sage advice, just to give us some fishing tips, cast on the right-hand side of the boat. Oh, that's genius. I wonder over the course of the night how many times they had cast over the right side of the boat. You imagine? I have no idea, I honestly can't tell you what it is that brought these men to follow this directive, and it is a directive, it's a commandment. Maybe they did it sort of out of spite. Oh, the, the, the right side of the boat, you say, okay, we'll do it. Maybe, maybe it was the fact that the man knew that they had no fish and perhaps he also knew where the fish could be found, I don't know. Maybe there was something simply authoritative in Christ's command and therefore they obeyed it. Whatever the case, they obeyed the command of Jesus and they learned a critical lesson. Again, verse 6, so they cast and then they were not able to haul it in. That's a lot of fish. I was thinking about this, as fishermen might. You've got a group of men in the boat. We know what, 153 fish. I'm telling you that I and maybe I, Maybe I and at least one other guy, my fishing buddy in the back of the boat, we could haul in 153 fish. But the text tells us these are 153 large fish. These fish were big, and they were heavy. And I don't think there's any point in that other than this. With Jesus, you don't catch minnows. You'll... With Jesus, you see things happen that you dreamed would happen your entire life. This is the same thing. Remember Peter back in, in Luke 5? Jesus says, put your, your net into the deep water, let it down. And, and, and Simon says, look, we labored all night. We caught nothing. But at your word. In other words, I, I'm just going to do it. I'll obey you. And they got two boats worth of fish there that began to sink the boats. 
that had to be more fish than this was. Don't miss the fact that obedience to Christ in this text leaves these men laboring under an absolute load of fish. And I've been trying to make this point from Peter's sermon in Pentecost all the way along. Peter did not come up with some miraculous message on his own. He did not sit down for hours and craft some outline and and come up with a whole bunch of catchy illustrations. He simply preached the word of God He declared Christ Messiah. He announced Christ crucified for sinners. He talked about the reality of Christ's resurrection, and then he said, you killed him, and you need to repent and believe. That is is far too simple for many men who occupy pulpits in our day. And yet 3,000 came. Brothers and sisters, listen, to do God's business, you must do it God's way. I want to ask you, do you think, what if, what if the man on the shore had shouted these things and Peter and company simply would have scoffed and blew him off? We're not going to do it. Would they have had a catch? What if they decided not to throw the net? They were too defeated and too tired, and they simply rowed to shore. Do you think Jesus would have paddled back out with the net and gone fishing for them? You see, the response to Jesus when he calls us to be fishers of men is not, hey, that's ridiculous, I could never do it. The right response to Jesus when he calls us and he puts his gospel in our our mouths is to simply say, yes, Lord, and to cast. Cast the net. Right side, left side, bow, stern, starboard, port. I did that for you sailors. I, 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 I can never keep them straight. But you get the idea. We just obey Christ. I love the thought that somewhere down the road, these men would be gathering together again for a reunion somewhere, and they would be sitting around, and they would be talking about this very day, and they said, do you remember? Do you remember what that was like? All we did was cast it on the right side of the boat, and suddenly a whole night of futility gave way to fruitfulness. What an amazing thing. When we do what he calls us to do, beloved, we will catch fish. That leads us to a fourth ministry commitment. Here it is. We must have an unwavering affirmation. It's got to be unwavering. An affirmation that success in ministry is the sovereign work of God. It is the sovereign work of God. Verse 7. Therefore, the disciple whom Jesus loved, you remember John in his humility, that's the way he refers to himself. This is John, the author of this gospel, the human author, writing. Therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, he looked right at Peter and he said it, it is the Lord. How did he know that? It could have been anybody, or could it? You see, the light was still low. They were still 100 yards out. But John knew something, didn't he? And he was the first to glean insight, apparently, in this boat. And it's simply this, that that the wind and the waves obey him, demons submit to him, and even the fish are subject to him. They'd seen that three years earlier, and this was too close to that event to, to be mistaken in any way, shape, or form. It's the Lord. Christ is the sovereign one, beloved. He is the one who puts fish in the net. He is the one who builds his church. Our task is to keep our lure in the water. Our task is to keep our nets in the water. He's the one who draws the net. He's the one who sets the hook. He supplies the catch. And how important it is for us to remember that as we 
proclaim him in this world, that salvation is of the Lord. It keeps us from pride when people come to Christ, and it keeps us from discouragement when people don't. When we see people come to Christ in this life, we should be just like John. We look at them, they profess Christ, they're baptized, and we say what? It is the Lord. It is the Lord. It's like Peter in Acts 2. What did he he say? He didn't say, you know, (laughs) man, what a sermon. His closing salvo was that he kept begging them what? To be reconciled to God. He kept calling them to be saved from this evil generation. And he says, as many as the Lord God will call to himself. You see, Peter had this crystal clear. Those 3,000 did not come because he was a dynamite preacher. Those 3,000 came because the gospel is mighty in the hands of Christ and the Holy Spirit to accomplish God's purposes through the mouth of a believer. Peter was just the means. Here's Peter. So when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment. He was stripped down, meaning he was down and just the bare nothing so that he could work among those other men. And he puts on that outer garment and he cast himself into the sea, which is precisely what you and I would have expected from impulsive Peter, right? That he would just throw himself into the water and start swimming. Except remember again from where he's come just recently. This is an amazing statement, somewhat about Peter, but mostly about Jesus. Peter wants nothing more. He just bails out of the boat. He leaves his friends. He leaves the fish. He leaves everything. He is single-minded. You know, those fish, it said they were dragging it behind them. That boat was way too slow for Peter. He just had to get there. He was not going to wait. He had no other concern but that he got to Jesus. And what's wonderful is that Jesus wants to see him too. You know how the rest of this chapter ends. Jesus is going to take Peter on a little walk down the beach after breakfast, isn't he? And they're going to have a little talk. And it's a wonderful talk, humbling as it may be. And the Lord's going to restore Peter, and he's going to recommission him again with the same commission that he gave him before in shepherding language instead of fishing language, but, but... But Jesus' call on Peter's life was not derailed because of Peter's failure. Verse 8, but the other disciples came in the little boat, for they were not far from the land, about 200 cubits, that's 100 yards, frankly, or, or, or approximately, away, dragging the net full of fish. So when they got on land, they saw a charcoal fire in its place. And I do think it's intriguing that the last time Peter was warming himself by a charcoal fire, things were different. He was seeking to distance from Christ in every possible way he could. Here we find him swimming to Jesus. It's a great picture. They saw the charcoal fire in place and the fish placed upon it and bread. Can you imagine? These weary men, they've been out all night. They're hungry. They've got nothing in their boat, need I remind you. And here's the Lord with hospitality of the most divine sort. You're in the cool of the morning. you got a warm charcoal fire. There's the smell of baking bread. There's the crackle of, of fish sizzling there on the grill. And Jesus, before inviting them to dine, sends them back to the net. And what I think this is really trying to get at is it's giving them time to contemplate the object lesson that he had just given them. Verse 10, Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish which you have now caught. Did Jesus need more fish? I think it's unlikely. Simon Peter went up and drew the net to land. Think about that for a moment. What a group of men could not pull, Simon Peter is hauling. Simon Peter was a dude. He was strong. He is dragging this thing full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net 
was not torn. Some think the command was to bring a, a supply of additional meat to feed so many men. I don't think so. I believe the whole point here is, is that this directive is given to draw attention to the lesson at hand. Apart from Christ, their work is barren, but with Christ, the net is full. That's the point. They went from zero fish to 153, and these were not guppies. And Peter drew that net to land. He measures them. He counts them. He was going to make his way down to Sportsman's Warehouse. I'm sure he was. I just know the way fishermen are. It's funny, you, you read the commentaries. That, uh, commentators throughout history, frankly, all, going all the way back, have been wearying themselves with this number 153 to squeeze out some unhidden meaning. Greek zoologists reckoned that there were 153 different types of fish in the world. Saltwater, fresh, I mean, I, you know. 153 different types of fish in the world, and so what this really signifies is the drawing of sinners from every tribe, tongue, and people. I don't think so. Number 153, here's a second go at it, is the sum of all of the whole numbers from 1 to 17. You add 1 to 2 and 2 to 3, and you just keep adding that up. And what you'll end up with, if you go all the way to 17, is 153. And you say, well, why is 17 important? Well, because if you take the number 10, that's representative of God's law. And you take number 7, and that's representative of God's grace. And what you have here is the, the whole of Scripture is coming together, and I'm not even sure that that means anything. Anyway, okay. You also could take, get this, the numerical values of the letters. Every letter had a numerical value. You take the numerical values of the letters in the name Simon, there are 76, and you combine that with the word ichthus, which is the Greek word for fish, and that's 77. And if you add 76 to 77, you get 153. And the point is that Peter was the, the, the pope of fishermen. I mean, that, that, that's the idea. He's the preeminent fisherman. I could go on and it would be humorous, but I won't. I, there are tens of these. I mean, crazy. You want to know what this means, this 153? It means this, Jesus builds his church. That's what it means. Men cannot do it. But Christ will build his church. And we have fished all night by ourselves and we got nothing but Jesus. He made one cast and caught one massive net full of fish, 153 to be exact, and they were large. That's simply the point. Now, I do wonder if there's more significance to the fact that John mentions that although there were so many, the net was not torn. I think Jesus is probably intending in this fishing lesson to translate all of their work to being fishers of men. And what he's saying to them is this, that you men need to understand that when you fish for me, you're going to net many men by the grace and the power of God and none of them will be lost. I think that's a real potential given that John, in John 6, 37, said this, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. Jesus does not fling fish out of his net. John 6, 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. That's interesting. It's the same, same word for Peter drawing the net and I will raise him up on the last day. God does not lose his people. You remember John 10. My people are in my hand, in the Father's hand, and no one's strong enough to take them out. Success in ministry is the sovereign work of God who draws and gathers. We have one point to go. Effective and enduring service to Christ is accomplished by an unceasing awareness that ministry is a mercy an unyielding conviction that apart from Christ we can do nothing. We must have an unhesitating obedience to the word of Christ. We must have an unwavering affirmation. We all agree we're committed to it. We are not the reason that people come to Christ. Success in ministry is the sovereign work of God. And finally, there must be in us, beloved, an unshakable confidence in the care 
and provision of Christ. Verse 12, Jesus said to them, come, have breakfast. None of the disciples dared to question him, who are you, knowing that it was the Lord? Jesus came to them and took the bread and gave it to them, and the fish likewise. This now is the third time that Jesus was manifested to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Think of the warmth and hospitality of Christ, beloved, inviting them to breakfast, taking concern for their needs. He, he served them his entire life. Here he is now, the risen Lord, and he is still ministering to their need and providing whatever it is that they need. And just as in Luke 5, remember how astonished they were. Here, here, here are these, these disciples, and they are humbled. And I would say that the text leads us to understand that they were even overwhelmed by the presence of the Lord. I, I think this was an uncomfortable breakfast. It says none of them even dared. What do you mean dared? I mean, I just thought we were a few guys sitting around a fire eating some fish and bread. They knew as men of flesh that they were among the king of kings. They understood. Jesus doesn't even look to them and, and say, hey, could you bring some fish for the grill? He's already taken care of it. They're cooked up just perfectly. Mm. That bread, I guarantee you, was more delicious than any bread you or I have eaten. Olga's bread is close, but this was good stuff. And the point, again, is simply this. These men are renewed in their reverence for Christ and their awe of him. They're overwhelmed by his presence. And here Jesus gets up and takes initiative to serve them. And the point is simple, that great, Jesus graciously supplies the needs of his people. The disciples were weary. They were hungry. They may have been cold. They were without food, and Jesus supplied. And that, that is just the point. The Lord always supplies, doesn't he? Anybody starving? Anybody without? Anybody without an abundance? He is aware of us. He cares for us. He is able and he is willing, beloved, to meet our needs day after day after day. And I say to you, you must root that in your heart if you're ever going to be able to serve him well. You'll never give abundantly to the cause of Christ and the gospel in this world if you're concerned that you won't have enough. You'll never go to preach Christ in some other place if, if you're terrified that somehow when you get there, Jesus will leave you to the wolves. If you're not wholeheartedly convinced and confident in the reality that he's got you. You, you won't share Christ with an attitude of joy and a, a, a heart motivation of love if, if you're so consumed with just your own little world that you don't even think about other people. It's very easy, isn't it, to be busy and so consumed with work and responsibility and hurried by so many things that we don't even have time or energy to serve Christ. Jesus said, seek ye first, what, the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all that other stuff that this world so eagerly pants after, all of that is going to be added unto you. Paul put it this way in Philippians 4.19, and my God will supply, that's a fact, all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. 2 Corinthians 9, 8, God is able to make every grace abound to you so that in everything, at every time, having every sufficiency, you may have an abundance for every good deed. That's a lot of everys. So what did the Lord wish to convey to his men at dawn that day. What, what is it that he wants to walk, you to walk out with this morning? And, and the lessons here, frankly, were not lost on Peter at Pentecost and they should not be lost at us. 
on us. Listen, number one, ministry is a mercy. Though you're weak and you're faithless, still he's called us to minister in his name. How Peter must have relished on the day of Pentecost, that moment when he stood up to declare Christ, that had to be as surprising to him as it was to anybody else. He had failed miserably and Christ now uses him mightily. Secondly, we need to be aware that apart from Christ, we can do nothing. Peter had no power. We have no power. Peter had to wait until he was clothed with power. You, in Christ, have been clothed with power. You have the Spirit within you who works mightily. We can fish for men all day, all night. We can strategize, but we will never draw any to the net until the Lord acts. What could Peter do? Well, he could obey the word of the Lord. He could preach the gospel that Jesus authorized. He could go fishing, and that's what he did on the day of Pentecost. He could proclaim the cross of Christ, the empty tomb, and call sinners to repentance and faith. And would this result in pride for Peter? Not, not at all. He did not go on a how-to-build-your-church speaking circuit. He did not uh, begin writing articles for Church Growth Magazine. He simply understood that success in ministry is glory to God, that salvation is of the Lord. And whether there are 153 large fish in the net or 3,000 sinners at the altar, it's all God's doing. All praise and glory and honor to Christ and how Peter relished in the care and provision of Christ. You know 1 Peter 5, 6, or 5, yeah, 1 Peter 5, 6. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you, what, at the proper time, casting all of your cares on him. Why? Because he cares for you. You see, Peter knew this. These are the things, beloved, that enable us to faithfully serve Christ for the duration of our lives and to fulfill the ministries that God has given to us. And this is the way, like Peter, from cowardice to courage. This is how we stride out to speak the gospel with boldness that is draped in love. Beloved, this is how you fish for a man and my encouragement this morning. And the call of Christ upon our lives is that we would keep our lure in the water. There is no another, other name in heaven or on earth by which men must be saved. Lord, you are the King of kings, the Lord of lords. You are the Savior of sinners. You gave your life, expended yourself on our behalf that we might know the joys of heaven the glories of knowing you, walking in fellowship with you, being with you for all eternity. Oh Lord, you sent out your people to declare your truth, and so the gospel spread mightily as it did on the day of Pentecost, and Lord, that story has not ended. You are still sending forth your gospel as you have sent forth your people, and the power of your word through their mouths is producing a crop for all eternity. Lord, we acknowledge that this is your great work. This is not our work, and yet you, by your mercy, have called us to serve, to go and to preach the gospel. I do pray, Lord, that you would stir us up in a way that we have never seen, that it would be no longer that we shrink back in lethargy or are troubled by cowardice, but, Lord, that we would stride through those things, that we would labor while it is day that we might fulfill your call to go and to preach and to proclaim the truth, to make disciples from all nations. Oh, Lord, these things are noble. These things are wonderful. These things are eternal. Stir us up. And, Lord, we pray that we might have the joy of seeing you land fish from the message that we declare that we might give you all glory and honor and praise. Thank you for your love for us. Thank you that you never, oh Lord, abandon us. Thank you that you have a purpose for us. Thank you, Lord, that you have given us a clear command. Thank you that you sovereignly save and that we can trust you for that. And thank you that you provide all that we need. We give you praise in Christ's name. Amen.